Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. I pray you are doing well, that the Lord is blessing you in the midst of this storm that seems to continue and go on and on and on. Uh, We were hoping we got a little bit of a glimpse of what we believe uh, will come out tomorrow as far as our uh, next set of regulations and how they'll affect uh, church attendance. Uh, I have no news to report tonight because there's nothing in them that even apply to us as far as we can see uh, yet. So stay tuned Sunday. If there's a new bit of news, we'll make sure that you have it. If there's a new plan, we'll make sure you know it. Uh, In the meantime, make sure you invite somebody out, have a watch party for Sunday. Uh, Grab those questions, discuss them, uh, turn it into your own little home study, even though we're uh, not effectively calling these things home studies. They really are exactly that in some ways. And so an opportunity for you to fellowship and get a little human contact until we can meet back here in the sanctuary and gather together again for services in this building. If you turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah 20, and again, I remind you, as I frequently do, uh, if you were to travel, if you were to go with us, and we're going to have word on what's going on with our Israel trip, but if you were to travel with us on our Israel trip, which looks like it'll be postponed until uh, 2021, just due to all the things that are going on in Israel. But if you travel with us, one of the places we go is to the Shrine of the Book. And inside of the Shrine of the Book, the book that they're referencing is a scroll of Isaiah. And that scroll is about 52 feet long. It contains the entire book that we're reading, uh, obviously in Hebrew, not in English. And if you were to look at that, you'd have a tough time finding chapter 19 and chapter 20 or chapter 18 or 22 or any of the other chapters, because the chapter and verse designations are not in the original language. Uh, And so as we get to chapter 20, which happens to only be six verses long, it becomes very clear uh, one of these places where, for whatever reason, those who translated uh, the Latin Vulgate uh, into both English and German, uh, ultimately, as they translated this particular passage, they saw some kind of a break there, And it really is a context issue for what was in chapter 19. And so this really reads here in chapter 20 as a footnote to chapter 19, which of course was about Egypt. And so we can take these first six verses, and as we read them, they really apply to God's ultimate purpose, which for Egypt one day is to redeem it. And yet we look at Scripture in a very unique way because we can also see how Egypt is a type or a typology of the world. And the world is going sideways right now. Uh, We might be going backwards. We we could be heading places that uh, we've already been from. And so I pray uh, tonight, and we're going to pray for our nation, just the, the absolute wild things that are going on in our midst. Uh, the overthrow of police precincts and uh, the protests that are going on that are right and good and the things that are lawful and the things that aren't and the coronavirus and all of it. Uh, The Lord is the only answer to these things. And I pray that you'll stay focused on the Lord 
as we study his word, we garner truth. That truth will help us get through these times. And so would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up here the first six verses, which comprise the 20th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Father, we thank you that in the midst of our storm, Lord, whether it's the coronavirus, the racial injustice that we're fighting against, Lord, the lawlessness that's broken out, the things that have overtaken our nation, and Lord, taken us to places that many of us never thought we would ever get in this millennium. But Lord, we're there, and the only answer is you, and we pray that as we study your word, Because you've given us some of these details in advance. You've told us about these kings and kingdoms, the way this world would go and what would happen in the very last days. And we pray that you would instruct us from heaven, uh, encourage us and strengthen us. You do have it under control, Lord. It may seem like it's out of control. It may seem like these problems are are untenable. Lord, they, they can't continue. And if they do, we certainly will be lost. But Lord, we are not lost in you. Uh, We've been found in you, and you have a solution if we will simply listen. And so speak to us as your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we begin here uh, with chapter 20 and those six verses that comprise it, uh, a footnote really to chapter 19 and to God's dealing uh, and his prophecy against, if you will, uh, Egypt. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, and as you read that, you might be tempted to think that Tartan is a name, and it really isn't a name, it's an office, and we'll get to that in a moment. It's really an administrator. Uh, Came to Ashdod when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him. And interestingly enough, as you study your Bible, you will find names, you will find kings, you will find kingdoms. Uh, And the more we study, the ancient history of the Middle East, we find out that these names were not only uh, spoken of, but they're recorded, especially Sargon, the king of Assyria. Uh, he was quite a prolific uh, historian of himself, and so he made sure that his deeds were uh, well chronicled, and we have record of those deeds, and we know exactly when he lived and exactly what he did. And he fought against Ashdod. Ashdod would be the land of the Philistines, so this is the coastal region of Gath, uh, it is a coastal port city of Israel today. Uh, but at the time, it was inhabited by the Philistines, and the Philistines controlled uh, the southern coast of what is today modern-day Israel and took it. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take off your sandals off your feet. And so he did. And this doesn't sound like something God would tell you to do, but when God speaks this way, there must be a reason, walking naked and barefoot. Now, during this time, it's important for you to understand a little bit of history. And as you think of this, um, we would not think of doing this to a prisoner of war, but this was, in fact, a very common practice during that day and time. If someone was taken during war, especially if you were a man, the most undignified thing that you can do to to a prisoner of war, if you didn't outright slay them, was to make them walk naked. You took away every bit of dignity that they had. And so those men would be useless. They'd be ungirded. uh, They would be unguarded. They would be humiliated. Uh, And so Isaiah is being told by the Lord I want you to actually feign being a prisoner of war. 
I'm going to, to use you as a lesson to the children of Israel that are left, which is now down to the tribe of Judah, which is inside of, in essence, the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, uh, the city of the great king, Mount Zion. Uh, and I want you to act like you're a prisoner of war. And he's going to use him as an object lesson. And then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. So, and here it is, he tells us what's going to happen. The king of Assyria will lead away the Egyptians as prisoners, the Ethiopians as captives, young, old, naked, and barefoot with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And so God intends to tear down that mighty power, Egypt, and their allies, which would have been Ethiopia or the center of the African continent. And then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation and Egypt, their glory. You, you see, they had come to trust in themselves. And really the lesson here is how we should view the world and giving ourselves over to it. And this is a really important lesson for us tonight because there are a lot of things being said in the public square which frankly make zero sense. They're, they're not of the Lord. Uh, they're, they're nonsense to some degree. But they're being shouted very loudly. There are, there are things that are being purposed uh, and things that are being done that have nothing to do with lawful assembly. They have everything to do with anarchy and chaos. And when people begin to judge themselves instead of turning to the Lord, most anything will, will end up happening during that time. The children of Israel will experience this as they turn the, the nation over to the judges. And as the people did what was right in their own eyes, they, they always ended up in trouble. Uh, and so we're being warned here in our day and time, just as Ethiopian, just as Egypt, which was at that time still in its glory, and the inhabitant of this territory will say that in that day, again, that phrase, speaking now of the future, surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, how shall we escape? And so God is saying, look, I have these world kingdoms under control. I have my people, a remnant of them, which is now reduced down to, to what we call Judah, the, the, the southern tribe, and those that were of the tribe of Benjamin as well. But here, Judah has been reduced to really hiding inside of uh, the city walls of Jerusalem. And so this faction of the Jewish people now sees what's happened in the north. They, they recognize Assyria's coming. They recognize the world's coming. And they would be very tempted because their nearest neighbor to the south would be Egypt. And the nearest neighbor below them to the south would be Ethiopia. And as you're watching uh, those that you know in the northern kingdom, those that are in your neighborhood being taken captive, their lands being stolen, their property being taken, their, their wives being defiled, their children being murdered. 
it would be very, very tempting to cave in and go back to the world. And church, I want to speak to you tonight because we face that in our day and time. There's so much chaos going on in our country right now. There's so much animosity, people towards other people. There's so much hatred. There's so much evil speaking. There's so much untruth being spoken that it is very hard to see how this is going to work out well. And the temptation is the same for us. There is a temptation to throw our hands in the air and say, let's just make peace with the world. Let's just go back to Egypt. Well, let's join up with Ethiopia. There's a mess happening. Our best choice is no longer the Lord. Our best choice is to run back to the world. And I want to strongly caution you. That has been one of the devil's tools for a very long time. And it has never worked out ever for anyone who names the name of the Lord when we see trouble coming for us to run to the world. We have to run to the Lord. We have to trust in the Lord. We have to run back to to the safety of his arms. We have to hide under the shadow of his mighty wings. We, We need to get back to that place to where we will say, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to give in. As Isaiah again uses this term, in that day, he's obviously in its most extreme uh, prophetic fulfillment, still speaking of a time that's yet future. And we know because chapter 19 reminded us that one day Egypt is actually going to become a Christian nation, as will Saudi Arabia, as will Assyria, which is right now during this time in the, the writing of this particular book during the, the time of Isaiah the prophet, Assyria was the world's greatest war power. They had invented a new type of chariot that at times could carry as many as four people. It was armored. It was able to, to withstand uh, the blows of swords. And they had the, one of the world's great cavalry units. And they were a fearsome sight. And the world at times for us right now is a fearful sight. It's like we look at it, it's like, man, how can I fight against this unrighteousness? How can I say anything? I will tell you right now, for those of us who occupy pulpits, we're in a precarious place because no matter what is said right now, people are looking for a way to tear it apart and reduce it to something that isn't intended to be said, wasn't said. And the world is angry. Our our country is filled with an awful lot of angry speech, at times hatred. And turning back to the thing that makes us sick is not going to help. Turning to the Lord is the only thing that can help. And so here in chapter 20, Isaiah is predicting Assyria is going to destroy Egypt. Assyria is going to destroy Ethiopia. And in between what has already happened in the north, the northern kingdom, Israel, those 10 tribes, and where Egypt begins and where ultimately Ethiopia is south of them, lies Judah. And so for all intents and purposes, 
This is a massively hopeless situation. If that weren't bad enough, the only place that isn't occupied, uh, that is, is not Judah or wasn't previously Israel that's already been taken captive, is the land of the Philistines and the land of the Edomites, both of which are enemies to Israel. And so in that sense, they're surrounded. And perhaps tonight, you feel surrounded. Perhaps tonight, as a, as a believer, as someone who loves the Lord, you feel like you're surrounded by people who don't love God. People who seem to have their own agenda. And maybe you're thinking, hey, maybe it's just time to, to join them. Maybe it's time to give in. Maybe this following the word of God thing isn't going to work out. I mean, after all, I'm surrounded by my enemies. Church, there's a lesson here. And it's very clear. People who truly love God cannot turn to the world for help. We need to turn to the Lord for help. His word declares very plainly, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from the world. It rarely comes from our flesh, and it will never come from the devil. And so our enemy, which is everywhere, and I'm not trying to paint a horribly negative picture here, but you don't have to but turn on the TV, and you can be depressed in five minutes. You don't have to but read a, a single news article and you're like, what are we going to do? What we're going to do is what Judah learned to do. You have a choice. I have a choice. We have a choice as a church. We can either stand strong and turn to the Lord or we can throw our hands up and give up. Here in this church, we're not throwing our hands up and we're not going to give up. We're going to continue to follow the Lord. We're going to do exactly what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. We're going to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We're not going to lean on our own understanding. We're going to acknowledge him in absolutely everything. In other words, we're going to trust him. We're going to let him direct our steps. And we're not going to be wise in our own eyes. We're going to take every thought captive. We're going to fear the Lord. We're going to depart from evil. That's what gives us strength. That's what gives us health. That's what gives us what we need. But Israel is going to learn a very powerful lesson. Judah is going to learn a very powerful lesson. Oh, they're going to survive the Assyrian onslaught. But they're not going to fully turn to the Lord. That's not going to do it for them. And that's probably the saddest thing about this time in Israel's history. Israel has an opportunity to fully yield to the Lord, and they choose to kind of half-heartedly do that. And ultimately, they're going to go into captivity in Babylon because of it. And that is the focus of chapter 21. You see, Assyria is going to be dealt with by God, and we'll see that at the end of chapter 21. God had it under control the whole time. 
And so here's poor Isaiah wandering the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half years without a stitch of clothes on, going, this is what we're going to be like if we turn to the world. We're going to be taken captive. Don't be tempted to be taken captive. Because we begin chapter 21, we find this burden uh, against media, Persia, or, or what would ultimately be the kingdom they would take over, which is Babylon. And so it begins in verse 1 there in chapter 21, the burden against the wilderness of the sea. And we'll find as we get down to verse 9 that this is actually Babylon and named as such. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, and so it comes from the desert, a terrible land. Babylon was a formidable force. And in fact, once Assyria faded, Babylon rose. After Babylon rose, the Medes and the Persians rose. There was kingdom after kingdom. The very thing that Daniel saw in this vision as he sees this statue on the plain of Dura, as Daniel picks up that vision in the first several chapters of the book of Daniel, he sees these world empires, and it would include Babylon and Media Persia and Greece and Rome. And a future kingdom that will be the revived Rome that is still yet to rise in our time. Babylon also was powerful. And Babylon also represented the world. But yet Babylon is not going to survive. And so this prophecy against Babylon and against Media and against Persia basically is putting us into this place to where we can understand God actually has control over the kingdoms of the world. And you're probably saying, I I don't see that here in our country. It's like, who can you trust? Where can you go for even real information? It's like news isn't news anymore. Everything is an op-ed piece. It's an opinion of someone. I was joking today on a phone call, and we were, you know, we were sitting there talking, and, you know, we... Both of us who were speaking were of the age that we can remember the Huntley-Brinkley report. We can remember Walter Cronkite. And and it was like, it was an anathema. No one ever thought of adding their opinion to the news. The news was the news, and you just simply spoke what happened. And today, news isn't even news anymore. I'm not saying all, and I'm not saying every reporter, but what I am saying is, We listen to what's going on in our world, and it is hard to find truth. It's difficult to find something that isn't simply someone's opinion of what they saw. And in the world that Isaiah is writing in, and in what will follow him, as the Jewish people, what remains of them are taken captive, as Daniel would write his prophecy, as they would spend that time there and ultimately come back under Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuild the the broken-down city of Jerusalem. As these whirlwinds pass through, it's a picture of what is lying directly south. You see, when you leave Jerusalem and you begin to head south, doesn't matter whether you head directly south, whether you head southwest, or whether you head southeast, you're heading into the middle of absolutely nowhere. It's the Negev to begin with. To the east, it's the Arabian Peninsula. 
to the south and to the west. Uh, You would bump into Cairo first, and after that, the deserts of northern Africa. In other words, God's saying, look, no matter where you go, the result will be the same if you don't follow me. When you turn away from the Lord, when you turn away from his word, when you turn away from his life in us that we have in Christ, when you turn away from God, everything else is desert. Everything else is barren. Everything else is dry. And so verse 2 goes on, a distressing vision is declared to me. A treacherous dealer deals treacherously. The plunderer plunders. It's like, duh. And yet, isn't it weird how when we look at the world, sometimes we're just like the Jewish people. We go, man, let's go back to Egypt. You might remember that from the book of Exodus. The children of Israel haven't been there very long, and they begin to whine and moan and complain. It's like they've been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. They've been taken miraculously across the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness of sin. The first thing they begin to do is grumble. And it's like, man, couldn't we just go back to Egypt? In our day and time, we call that backsliding. We call it going backwards. The devil is constantly trying to get us to go backwards. And sometimes we have this very thing come into view in our lives. We go, no, that's not really plundering. No, that's not really a treacherous dealer dealing treacherous, treacherously. It, you know, it's kind of not just the way the world works. Maybe we should buy into that. Go up, O Elam. Besiege, O Media. All is sighing. I made it to cease, and therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. And I was distressed when I heard. I was dismayed when I saw it. In other words, Isaiah is saying, look, don't go there. The vision that I'm seeing is if we go that direction, it's not going to be good. And he's basically speaking of his own response to seeing this vision of what lies ahead if they turn away from the Lord and turn towards their enemies. They turn towards the world. At this time, uh, Assyria is in a period uh, of ascendancy historically. They are the power. These two little tribal provinces of Media and Persia were known at that time as, as Elam. And this is a beautiful picture of how we see these, these internal evidences within Scripture that this was written not by man but by God because they weren't even known at this time as Media and Persia. They were known as Elam. And yet God through the prophet Isaiah says, no, they're going to be known as Media and Persia. That wouldn't happen for 200 years. And in this vision, it's, it's interesting, God speaks to the prophet and, and what's going on, it has a physical effect on him. You know, sometimes when God speaks to us, it has a physical effect. And have you ever been grieved over something in your own life? You're just like, Lord. And you do exactly what Isaiah's doing here. You, you bend over as if you're having labor pains. Your stomach is turning. Your insides are churning. You're going, Lord, help. I, I need your help. 
And in verse 4, we find what Isaiah is going through. My heart wavered. The fearfulness frightened me. He was so afraid that the fear itself became an overwhelming emotion. The night for which I longed, he turned to me, or he turned into me for fear's sake. He said, I'm completely afraid of what lies ahead. If the dawn breaks, I I don't even know what's going to happen. And maybe that's you right now. I'm sitting reading some of these things. I watched the stock market plummet, as many of you did today. Again, another 6 or 7%, I think, in totality of its value. Massive, massive swings. And you're thinking, Lord, what's going to happen to my job? Lord, what's going to happen to my mortgage? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen? That fearfulness of the way the world's going in, and you're you're wanting to cave in, you're wanting to give in, you're wanting to do things the world's way, and God's saying, Don't do it. Trust me, I have this under control. You see, from Judah's perspective, they had every reason to want to give in to somebody. Let's surrender to the Assyrians. Well, let's go join the Arabians. Let's let's go join the the Edomites over there in modern-day Jordan. We'll see next. Well, let's just go north and we'll go towards the Phoenicians. Let's just join with somebody. Let's join some group. Let's spout some message. But this whole clinging to God thing, this hasn't gotten us very far. We're trapped in our own city right now. And I think a lot of Christians are feeling that way. It's like, it's like, man, we're so isolated. It feels like we're trapped in our own city. Isaiah's going to go on and expand on this particular period of history when we get to chapter 45. Uh, and we'll find, thankfully, through the Greek historian uh, Xenophon, that we actually know who this Persian king will be. His name is Cyrus. He's going to come and defeat Babylon. We're going to even know what he's going to do to get into the city. God's speaking to us right now. And God's reminding us of what he's already done. He's reminding me of what he's already done. And I can tell you personally, much of what's been getting me through this time is simply remembering what God has done. He didn't bring us this far to destroy us. He didn't bring us to this place to abandon us. His word is true. He won't ever leave us. He's not going to ever forsake us. He's not lacking power. His arm is still mighty to save. And when you look at what God has done, you begin to remember the reasons why you trusted him in the first place. He is faithful. He is true. The children of Israel were in that very horrible place of standing on the top of the fence going, which way should I jump? When God's saying, no, you just stay right there, I got you. Cities encircled by the enemies. Assyria's on the march, and it won't be very long before Daniel will see this vision on the night that Babylon fell. And it's interesting to me there in Daniel 5, if you remember that time as we were studying that, in Daniel 5, King Belshazzar 
receives these goods that were stolen from the temple by his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar is having a party. They're feasting, they're drinking, they're getting drunk from the temple vessels. They're throwing this incredible party. They're like rejoicing. Yeah, finally the Jewish people are taken out. Look, we've got their temple implements right here. I'm going to fill this silver trumpet with wine. I'll drink out of it. We'll show those, what you could say in a vernacular in the New Testament, we'll show those Christians what this is all about. We'll just party right in front of them. We'll defame everything that they've ever thought. And I think God is leaving these things to us as our history to remind us what happened to King Belshazzar. To remind us of what happened to Cyrus the Mede. To remind us of what happened to Sargon. Sinasherib. Pharaoh Ramses II. Alexander the Great, which we'll cover in a couple of weeks. All of these kings and kingdoms are dead. They're all gone. They left a mark on history. But they no longer rule anything. Their kingdoms are ruins. There's nothing left but a few stones of most of them. There's some monuments to their ancient technology. But the boasting they made about the children of Israel, the slavery that Israel was under, the desperation that Israel faced as Sargon marched forward, as Sennacherib came, as Nebuchadnezzar swept in, as Belshazzar feasted from those implements taken from the temple, every last one of those enemies of God was destroyed by God. They were wiped out. There is an end to their party. Isaiah calls it the night of my longed-for pleasure. It's been turned into fear. In verse 5, prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes, anoint the shield. And suddenly out of this, this banquet where it seems like it's all going one way, it's going the world's way, then steps in God. Then steps in the King of Kings, the Lord. He was always there. He says, anoint the shield. This is a practice during those times when warriors would go off to war. And this really lasted for a period of almost a thousand years especially during the time of the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Romans. But by the time they would get ready to go to battle, they would take their metal shields and they would put grease on them, usually animal fat. They would anoint the shields with oil. The reason they did that is it would give them greater confidence in battle because if someone were to strike a greased shield with a sword, it would glance off, it wouldn't stick. You see, if it was dry, then the metal would hit the other metal, it would make a crease, and you take a couple of wax, and maybe you could cut through the shield. And so they're preparing to fight the world's way. They're saying, grease the shields. 
well, let's, let's join in and, and battle the world's way. But there in the watchtower, there's a watchman. For thus has the Lord said to me, go and set a watchman and let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot and a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care and he cried, a lion, my Lord. And I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime and I set my post at night. It's interesting that Daniel, in his vision of the world governing empires, in his vision, the lion represented Babylon. So here in this time when Assyria is marching, the watchman looks ahead and he sees Babylon. In other words, he's given a foregleam of what's coming. He said, Assyria is not going to be the problem. There's going to be another world empire after them, and it's going to be a lion. And verse 9, look, here comes a chariot of men, a pair of horsemen. And then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods, he, that he is God, is broken to the ground. And oh, my threshing floor and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, that I have declared to you. Isaiah is saying, look, the, these world empires are going to rise. They're going to fall. But the God of heaven is the one that determines the outcome. They may come. They may have a place in history. And it's interesting to me that as there is a glimpse that's future still in this passage, that the very same thing is said in the book of Revelation in chapter 18, referring to the final Babylon, the Babylonian system, this commercial enterprise that will take over the entire world in the very last days. This one world government and one world monetary system and one world religion all linked together under the reign of the Antichrist. That Babylon will also fall. Why is that important to us? Because that Babylon is the one that's on the horizon right now. You see, for Isaiah, the actual Babylon of old was on the horizon. It would take almost 200 years but that Babylon was on the horizon. That Babylon was waiting in the wings. But even though they would be successful in taking Israel captive, even though Daniel would write from captivity, even though Nehemiah would be the king's cupbearer, even though Ezra would come back and build a pathetic temple, Nehemiah would come back and complete the walls and be fortified again. There'd be some victories. There'd be some defeats. Nothing and no one will ever stand against the Lord permanently. 
No king will ever rise above him. The vision that we saw in chapter 14 of Satan himself, as Satan pronounced, I will become like the most high God. That also will not happen. Oh, he's been exalting himself. He's been doing his best to destroy this world and rip it apart. But Satan himself one day is going to get his due as well, and he will be cast into the pit. He'll be chained forever, and his days will be done. Brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give yourself over. Babylon is going to fall. Whether it was the real Babylon or whether it's the mystery Babylon that's still on the rise today that may be waiting in the wings at this moment. God's got it under control. He has a plan. We finally come to the two remaining countries in this chapter. Duma and Seir, which are Jordan and Saudi Arabia or Arabia. Verse 11, the burden against Duma. He calls me out of Seir, watchman. What of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you inquire, inquire, return. Notice what he says. He says, come back. He says, come back to the Lord. You see, Mount Seir marked the borders of Eden, Edom, modern day Jordan. And this kind of brief, riddle-like oracle, Duma is the oasis that is in Saudi Arabia, about 250 miles south. And, and these two countries are, are to this day geographic neighbors. One of the things that I showed you not long ago was the proximity of all these nations one to another. And if you look at modern-day Israel, as it pins down to basically less than a half mile wide as it enters into the, the Red Sea, specifically the Gulf of Aqaba. You, you have Jordan, Israel, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia all within about 10 miles of each other. All you have to do is go down the coast a little bit further and you're in Saudi Arabia. You can go directly to the east, you're in Jordan. You go slightly south from Elat. And you're in Egypt. You see, these countries looked like they were far superior in number, in size, in battlement, in armament. It looked like the world was winning. And God's saying, mm, it only looks that way. It, it appears that Saudi Arabia is this massive uh, country that has authority over Israel. When you look today, these nations are militarily very well equipped. The nations that surround Israel, Israel is still surrounded. In that sense, you could reduce the whole nation down. At that time, it was Israel and it was Judah, these two kingdoms, north and the south. But today, if you just called it all Israel, you'd be speaking of the same geographic location. But if you look at what goes on in that region of the world today, Israel is still outnumbered. Israel is still overmatched. Every battle they've ever fought has 
has been won miraculously since their founding in 1948. In the last days, what's God going to do? Because it doesn't look like Israel's going to survive. It doesn't look like they can survive. And so God tells us what's going to happen in the very last days. The burden against Arabia. In the forest of Arabia, you will lodge. Oh, you traveling companion of the Dedanites or the Dedanites. Dedan was a place, the tribe of Dedan. Uh, and so the people uh, of Saudi Arabia, of, of Sheba or Sheba, whichever you prefer to call it. Those are the two major tribal families of Saudi Arabia. So the founding two tribes of Saudi Arabia are listed by name, Sheba and Dedan. And God says, you don't have to fear them. You don't have to worry about them. I've got them under control. One of the strangest things that really is, is in play in our day and time is the rise of Saudi Arabia. This sheikdom that's ruled by effectively a king or a sheik, a ruling family, fabulously wealthy from oil, oil that we've purchased, by the way, but their military is equipped with U.S. military weapons. They fly our F-15 Eagles. They have 80 or 90 of them. They're equipped with our missiles and rockets. They're, they're outfitted with, their, with our military weapons, our small arms, our anti-tank weapons. The U.S. has effectively armed one of Israel's enemies. But the Bible says they're actually not a threat to Israel. And so you can kind of look at it and it's like, well, you know, I don't know why we did that. Well, if you read your Bible, you'd understand that one day Arabia and Israel, Egypt, Assyria, they're all going to be friends. There is a nation that Israel does need to worry about and it's found there in Ezekiel 38. And that's Iraq and Iran. Primarily Iran or Persia. But when you look at the world today, people are going, oh, I don't know, you know why we did that. Why are we giving them military armaments? Well, God's word is actually pretty clear. Israel doesn't need to fear Saudi Arabia. Ultimately, they're not going to play into the picture. Oh, Russia will. Iran certainly will. And it's interesting to me that our State Department seems to understand that threat. Is the threat as far as the Bible is concerned to Israel's existence? Absolutely is Iran. That's why he developed these weapons of mass destruction. As they take Korean technology and they develop the Shahab missile or, or their latest Iteration of that, uh, the Gadir, which is a multi stage rocket. As they outfit that with the capability to make, carry larger and larger warheads. Look, don't kid yourself. 
Iran is not making a multi-stage ballistic missile so they can put 1,000 pounds of conventional explosives on top of it. No country on the face of the earth is going to make a 45-foot-long missile and, and then stick a bomb that's smaller than most of the bombs that you can load onto a plane. And you could carry a dozen of them underneath the plane. No, Iran has its sights on nuclear weapons. And Israel is the target. And Ezekiel 38 tells us that that's going to be the problem in the last, last days. And so sometimes we read our Bibles, we kind of have a tendency to look at it only from the ancient perspective. And it's true. There is an ancient perspective here. But Saudi Arabia has never really come against Israel. Well, they've joined in occasionally in some fights. Egypt has come against Israel. They now have kind of a pseudo-peace treaty. Jordan has come against Israel. And they also have a pseudo-peace treaty. Lebanon is ruled by Iran. Syria also, de facto, ruled by Iran and its military might. So as you look at your Bible, you're getting a little glimpse on what it's going to look like in the very last days. And when you look at the world, guess what you see? Exactly what the Bible says it will look like. We can trust the Bible. It's amazing. And so these developments that will one day take place that we find in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Saudi Arabia Arabia is listed along with the only inference in all of Scripture that might possibly be an inference to the United States, the young lions from the merchants of Tarshish. The battle's been set. The players have been named. We know what's going to go on in the very last days. And so as the Middle East is concerned, the nations we have to keep our eyes on are Russia and Iran, China. Those are the ones that are named. And so in the midst of all this other stuff that's going on in our country, and every bit of it has weight, has bearing, it's important. There are real issues that need to be solved. They're still on the much grander scheme of things. There's still a last day's timeline that's playing out as well. And we would do well to know that the Lord has all of it under control. And if he can name these nations by name, that will ultimately come against Israel. And maybe what we need to do is actually spend more time in our Bibles and less time on CNN or Fox News or Drudge Report or wherever it is that you go. Maybe we should be reading our Bibles and then asking God to give us divine wisdom about what to do in our day and time. The truth is, our, our Bible is amazing. Mind-boggling. And so when this conflict comes, Saudi Arabia is going to sit it out. Russia will rise. Iran will join them. And the Bible lays out in that sense the future of the Middle East. This burden he has for the Dedanites, the tribes of Arabia. Verse 14, O inhabitants of the land of Tema. Tema 
is an oasis area on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. It's about 200 miles north of Medina, and it's about 250 miles south uh, of the edge of the border with Jordan. Bring water to him who is thirsty, and with their bread they met him who fled, for they fled from swords, drawn sword, bent bow, and from the distresses of war. And now this prophecy uh, begins to take on this, this end times fulfillment. For thus says the Lord, he has said to me within a year, according to the year of a hired man, in other words, a calendar year, all the glory of Kedar will fail. The remainder of its archers, its mighty men, of its people, of Kedar will be diminished because the Lord God has spoken it. And so the Lord says, you know what? I'll, I'll prove this to you. In Isaiah's time, within one year, Sargon actually conquered Saudi Arabia in 716 B.C., so almost 1,500 years before Muhammad would receive his vision. God said, I'm telling you what's going to happen in this country. You can check that prophecy off the list. It happened. It's done. It's over. The Danites, they're never going to be a threat to Israel. Assyria is no more. All we have is their history. God's got this under control. He's big enough for the task. And if he can tell us what the world's going to look like, still future from us tonight, he can certainly ha handle our problems today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, we pray that prayer of the apostle John in that vision he received from you, Jesus, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, that's our prayer. That's ultimately our hope. We know you're going to come for us. You might get us one at a time, like you just took Buddy home. You, you might sound the trumpet and come get the church all at once. That could happen tonight. Lord, we might be a ways off, which would mean you, you may have revival in mind, and Lord, we want to be available for that. Lord, you might have us go through some of what the Bible says will be an apostasy of the last days. Maybe we're going to be the handful of churches still preaching the word when you take the church home, and maybe it's a little bit future. But the fact of the matter is, what remains is truth, is, Lord, you have a plan and you will not forsake us. You won't leave us. You're not going to abandon your children to the world. There's safety in your arms and we run into you, Lord. We, we're, we're coming to you. We're like that prodigal son. We're, we're going to come running back down the road and cast ourselves on your care. And so God, speak to us. Bless us. Strengthen us. Encourage us, Lord, in all of this madness and chaos. Uh, would you be our strength and our peace and our joy? Fill us with the Spirit. Give us words of encouragement, not only for us as your body, but for the world. Lord, we have the answer. And the answer is you, Jesus. And so we ask that you would use us to that end. Lord, help us to be a light.
to this world so that the world can be set free so that we can go home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.